The year is 1934 as we go back further than we've ever gone before. This is the seventh episode of the Comic Historian Podcast with me, your host, Bill Field, and my partners in crime, Jim Thompson. Howdy, Jim. Howdy. And Alex Grand. Hola, everybody. I would like to use Alex as a catalyst this week because 1934 was an important year in comics for several reasons. One of them was it was the death year of Windsor McKay, the creator and artist on Little Nemo. But my Alex segue is Alex Raymond began the wonderful and probably one of the most popular comic strips of all time, Flash Gordon. And not only that, but Milton Kniff began his foray into adventure and espionage with Terry and the Pirates. So, here we go, guys. It's 1934! And I might mention, 34 was important for a lot of reasons. 34 was the early years of radio still. People were finally, almost everybody had a radio in their homes. People were listening nightly to broadcasts and versions of comic strips already, earlier comic strips, on the radio, such as Little Orphan Annie and many others. And I'm wondering what you guys think and what you guys want to bring out about 1934 this week. I'd like to start with you, Alex. Like you said, Milton Kniff started tearing the pirates in 1934. His close friend, Noel Sickles, had started his work on the Scorchy Smith strip in December 1933, right before the year was about to change. And he was really influential on Kniff. Although Kniff was a great writer, Sickles, his talent was not really in writing, but definitely able to apply artistic principles onto the comic strip, like using chiaroscuro and the shadow and light sources to create a drama, and also just to reduce the amount of lines he had to put on the page to get as much drama in as little bit of time in each panel. And that did rub off on Milton Kniff, who then started the Tearing the Pirate strip in 1934. And I think that was a really huge addition into comic art in general, because the chiaroscuro, Jim Stranko used that, Wally Wood used that, Frank Miller used that. That's really important. 1934 is a big year as far as comic art. Alex, I I didn't realize until preparing today for this that those guys actually shared a studio in Ohio before either one of them arrived in New York. That's correct. Even though in some ways Sickles was was ahead of Kniff, Kniff is the one that was lured into New York, and then then Sickles followed him a month or so later because of, of Kniff's job at the AP. And what was he doing there, guys? I think editorials. Both of them were were hired to do newspaper illustration, I think. Which was being used quite a bit because photography was still rather expensive. And so there were quite a bit more uses in newspapers at the time for illustration, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. That's why that was a huge jumping off point for an awful lot of artists at the time. One of Bill's favorite comic artists, Joe Simon, started out in the newspaper world doing these kind of newspaper illustrations. And Alex is being very sarcastic because I'm not a big Joe Simon fan for people who have not been listening to our previous podcast. Not that you have to. This is a fine jumping off point, which I have said twice now in this podcast. Jim, what do you think of 1934? What is your favorite 
flavor, as it were, of comics in that period. I don't want to take away from the key ones, which are Hal Foster is doing his stuff at this time, Tarzan. He hasn't done Prince Valiant yet, but Raymond and, and Kenev and Sickles are all, you know, really changing the whole course of, of comic strips by emphasizing adventure so much. But the thing that I find interesting is that Al Cap started Low Abner in 1934, and Barney Google introduced the character of Snuffy Smith in 1934. The two of them together setting up for the launch of Beverly Hillbillies, you know, decades later. This notion of the, the country bumpkin emerges in comic strips in that 34 period, and I think that as a former Virginian is fascinating to me. <laughs> I believe one of the stark things that happens starting in 1934 is you start to see the effect that cinema had on comic strips. The reason I say this is because in the years that cinema was in its infancy, so were comic strips, especially when you look at Little Nemo and Hugo Hercules and a lot of the turn-of-the-century strips. Even into 1913 and beyond with Crazy Cat, you always saw long shots and only long shots in comics. This is true also of Blondie in the early days, and even you never saw close-ups in Blondie. You still don't. It's almost always in a medium or long shot, and I believe that when you get to Kniff and Raymond, they must have had an awful lot of time in front of movie screens because it was extremely evident that they were impacted by that, and that's when you had your sequential art starting to intimate the things that you had on the big screen. What do you guys think about that? I'm not sure. Bill, can you say it? explain it to me exactly the point that you're making? Okay, the point I'm making, when you look at strips like Hugo Hercules, like Little Nemo, like Crazy Cat, in almost every instance, the majority of the strips are long shots. They're not close-ups of the characters as Kniff and Raymond did later. They were strictly long shots. And also, of course, um, Will Eisner uh, was also one of the people to start this in the early years. But you almost always got long shots, or if not long shots, long-medium shots, such as Blondie. You very rarely get close-ups in that comic strip. It's almost always full-figure. Then you have cinema come in as a big force of nature almost in the popular culture, and then you see this shift starting around the late 20s, early 30s. But cinema's already, a, this is why I'm, I'm having a little confusion, because cinema's already pretty established at this time. It's silent cinema, but it's not like cinema's not around. No, what I'm saying is, is that this is the first time that you start seeing it impact comic strips. You start seeing artists picking up on the visual cues that they've been given in, in movies, and you see more of that creeping into the culture. Well, I see what you're saying. You're saying that the long shots like Little Nemo or Thimble Theater even is like a sitcom where you see the whole all the people in the furniture right there, and it's just this kind of drawn-out shot. And then you have a cinematic shot like in a later movie like Citizen's Kane where you have close-ups and stuff behind someone's head. Exactly. And you're saying that it's more these kind of panels, roughly in the 30s, that you, you feel that the strips have changed 
their language and how they're illustrating action and adventure this way. That's what you're saying. But it's basically going from a sitcom to like cinema. That's what you're saying. But but D.W. Griffith is doing close-ups in in silent cinema in the 1920s. I mean, we right. certainly don't have to wait for Citizen Kane to talk about close-ups. But think about Cats and Jammer, kids, comic strips of that ilk. They were almost always in long shots. You rarely got close-ups until cinema started using it. And also, but I will say this, it was also a boomerang in a sense because a lot of the early auteur cinema, and this is something I tend to know quite a bit about, but a lot of your German cinema and Russian cinema was very impacted by illustration and comic strips of their day in those countries. So you had the early days of movies, you had being influenced by comic strips, and then it gives back in that the uh, strides that they made in movies with, of course, Citizen Kane, then was then transposed into comics. I will say that if I were to look at or think about strips that I've read, and again, I haven't read every single one, so it's really hard for me to be totally absolute in this sort of generalization. But it does seem to me, though, that when I look at Little Nemo or I even look at Roy Crane wash tub strip from the 20s, they were more long, drawn-out shots. And then once the 30s hit, you have more close-ups and there's a more shadow on the face. Exactly. And I'm starting to think that, yeah, Roy Crane did employ more of those shots more in the 30s than he did in the 20s. And I know that Dick Tracy, as the 30s goes along, is doing more close-ups than he did when he first started in 1931. If I were to think about Thimble Theater and Popeye, I would think that more when Popeye comes around, and then as he's up and at him with E.C. Seeger, you see more close-ups of people. Whereas Thimble Theater first starts in 1919, it's more like you just see everyone, their whole body, and they're all on the panel. So maybe all those cinema have been doing it for a while, and maybe you're right. Maybe strip people themselves are starting to want to put more of it into that and get it more exciting. Maybe that's right. Uh, I, I guess I would have to see more strips to be absolutely sure, but that seems to be an observation you feel pretty certain about. Yes, and then another flip-flop happened in the fact that Orson Welles was extremely influenced by Kniff. He mentioned this several times, and an awful lot of the new things and new ways that he told the story in Citizen Kane was taken from Terry and the Pirates and the way that Milton Kniff told the story. And I think you guys can see that, especially Jim, as much as I know you love Orson Welles. There were a lot of things that he did, like the writing a lot of that hadn't happened before, like on-screen writing, where you hear the voiceover writing. That was done quite a bit in comic strips of the time, of the early 30s, but it wasn't until 1940, and Citizen Kane was actually the first movie to employ these things. And I believe a lot of that came from the comic strip phenomenon at the time. I don't think that Citizen Kane, I think you're giving it more... And I love Orson Welles, but I think you're giving it more credit than it perhaps deserves in terms of that. I think someone like Murnau, you're, you're, you're not taking into account just how sophisticated silent film had become before the advent of sound. And then that set us back a great deal because of microphones and things. But what, what someone like Murnau was doing in Faust and, and obviously in, in his other films, I think a lot of that was already present. Orson Welles, I know this because I had to study it for several semesters in college in film school, but Orson Welles is completely credited with off-screen voiceover with the writing. So I believe those kind of things didn't happen. And see, 
Well, you, you would be right about off-screen narration because Murnell was a silent filmmaker, so I'm talking about the writing and the fade-out into the action yeah. and things like Correct. that. And you're right on that. But when it came to Citizen Kane, you would have someone writing and you'd hear the narration. Then it would go into the actual action and the person would still be talking, but then you'd see them talking in character in the scene that they're describing in the written part, if right. that makes sense. Yeah, so, but Eisenstein was doing things as interesting or more than that decades earlier, is all I'm saying, in terms of that kind of blending from one, one thing to another. Jim, what do you think about Bill's observation, maybe it's an overgeneralization, maybe it's not, about those cinematic techniques being used in newspaper strips more in the 30s than in prior decades. What do you think of that? It's definitely true that the close-up at some point becomes more utilized in, in comic strips than it was. Timing-wise, I'm not sure about the thesis about the influence of film, simply because we'd had close-ups for a long, long time in film. I think where it's more interesting in terms of film's influence is in editing from one shot to another, the way that Eisenstein would take one shot would be, let's say, a sad a face, and then the next would be a baby. And from that, you would make the face you would assume was happy. And that's what sequential storytelling is in terms of comics, is the juxtaposition of the images. So they're both ed heavily edited mediums. So I think that's the more interesting aspect than camera angle or close-up versus distance well, is, is uh, what's in that next frame. Chester Gould was quite influenced by the gangster movies of the 30s, and he said this many times. And you can really see in Dick Tracy the way he utilized everything. He had close-ups, he had long shots, he had shadow shots, he had silhouettes. He used a lot of that, and of course a lot of that was used in the early days of comic books in the late 30s, early 40s. There was a huge Al Capone influence on Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie even. When organized crime was really going insane, they were using a lot of those topics, dark interplay between crime and normal people and innocent people. In Little Orphan Annie and Dick Tracy, especially them, more than like the King Feature stuff, and maybe because that was the Chicago Tribune media, so possibly the location of Chicago had something to do with the content of Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie having more organized crime presence. I don't know. That's my guess. But talking about German Expressionism, Crazy Cat, oh my gosh, Crazy Cat looks like, it, and it came way before, it looks like it was a set right off of a German Expressionist film. He was an absolute genius. He draws from 1913 to 1944, 31 wonderful years, and then he drops dead, which happened to quite a few people back then at that time. We lost Seeger in uh, 38, just a month before Superman debuted. What do you think about that, Jim? Do you think Crazy Cat had something to do with some of the stylistic things at the time in German Expressionists and other films? No, I mean, I, I think the roots are the same, which is German Expressionist art that informed... Kedensky also, people that like it, that. that. Yeah, that right. informed the filmmaking and it informed Harriman. So I, I think that's where the source material is probably common more than anything else. I would say that in 1934, as far as 
looking at genres of newspaper strips that were coming out as the older guys were kind of dying off. Alex Raymond, although we do mention Flash Gordon as a celebration of sci-fi fantasy, and although it was meant to be a competitor to the 1929 Buck Rogers strip with Dick Calkins, it really far exceeded it in almost every way. Alex Raymond was a genius because he also did Jungle Jim and Secret Agent X-9, so he was doing the crime genre, the jungle genre, and the sci-fi science fantasy genre all at the same time. What do you guys think about that? That's that's quite an explosion of talent from one person in 1934. Well, I think that Alex Raymond's early years in fashion illustration was one of the main things that changed the look of comics because his characters looked an awful lot more realistic. I mean, a hell of a lot more realistic than... Uh, Calkins, Buck Rogers, oh my God. I hate to even mention the two of those in the same breath. They often are because they were, you know, contemporaries. But honestly, I can't even look at Buck Rogers unless it's a 70s TV series. And it got better, don't get me wrong. But the fact that you have people like Alex Raymond and then, help me out, Alex. Mac Raboy? Yeah. Dan Barry? Yeah. You you always had the cream of the crop working on that strip. And Buck Rogers did get much better, don't get me wrong, but the early years, oh my God, it's it's hard for me to look at that stuff, quite frankly. However, Raymond, I could look at all day. As far as Buck Rogers, and it's true, that art, when it started in 1929, was kind of silly in comparison to what Alex Raymond did. And Alex Raymond was hugely inspired by Hal Foster, who was doing Tarzan since, what, 28 or 29, I would say that he did go in that same mold as Hal Foster. It's hard to compare such excellence to stick figures Calkins drew. However, I will say there was value in what Buck Rogers brought to people because it was the first sci-fi pulp story that was converted into a newspaper strip, and it was so well-received, people had Buck Rogers ray guns, and it was a huge phenomenon with people. People loved the Buck Rogers strip. People love science fiction. And I think that actually helped contribute to more writers thinking, well, I want to write more science fiction stuff. And, of course, without a Buck Rogers, there wouldn't have been a Flash Gordon. So it, it was definitely a stepping stone that I think explodes in 1934 with Flash Gordon specifically. And, and Alex, you said the key phrase, I think, in, in terms of uh, Buck Rogers, which is ray guns. Those were beautiful. I take slight exception to Bill. I mean, there's no question that Raymond is by far the superior artist, but both the rocket ships and the ray guns in, in Buck Rogers are really, really game changers, too. They, they do set up a, a visual appeal. That, that wasn't there before. Oh, totally. The whole Buck Rogers ray gun phenomenon just by itself is a big deal. The pictures yeah. of those old ray guns are just incredible. And just imagine being a kid in 1934 in the Great Depression and just thinking in the future you're going to have anti-gravity belts, you're going to have technology with ray guns that shoot lasers, with spaceships coming in. The wonder that Buck Rogers brought to the mainstream to actually rationalize sci-fi as a valid entertainment genre, I think that's really important. It, although Flash Gordon blows it away, but we needed that at the time to create the other stuff that comes after. And not only that, but Alex Raymond had done a few other things comic strip-wise before Flash Gordon. When he did that, that signaled the start to people like Hal Foster going from Tarzan to his own strip, Prince Valiant, 
which what which Tarzan, of course, was created by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And then you had people like Kniff, who didn't own a part of Terry and the Pirates, going on to create Steve Canyon. And I believe this started, this cycle started right about then, don't you guys think? There's certainly that generation of people that start around 1934, or roughly plus or minus a couple years, that then later, as comic books are doing their own thing, these guys ended up wanting ownership in the stuff that they were making, and so then jump ship or go to another company, or go back to the same company and then just get a better negotiating rate for the degree of ownership or money they got from it. And then you have that next generation, starts off after World War II, same guys, but now they've really got it at that point, where these guys are just living the best years of their life around this time. We are primarily a comic book-oriented podcast, so I have to get back to something very important here, and that is 1934 was in many ways the origin of the comic book as we know it. Uh, Jim, can you talk, talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I mean, if the first comic book that was actually for sale retail-wise comes out this year uh, in 34, which is Famous Fonnies. Funnies on Parade and Famous Funnies were 1933, actually, but then it was 1934 when the comic book companies start really getting started. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson starts National Allied Publications, which becomes DC in 1934. That's happening around the same time. These guys like Alex Raymond and Lee Falk, who starts Mandrake the Magician in 1934. And then the Phantom soon after that. Yeah, Phantom was 1936, and then Milton Kniff with Terry and the Pirates. So as these guys are really exploding with new newspaper strip content, then you have the the comic books reprinting old newspaper strips from the old guys, from the guys before Alex Raymond and Milton Kniff, and they're starting comic book companies. And you see that this is a bridging point, 1934, between that golden age comic strip guys that are now just starting and then the primordial pre-Golden Age comic book companies that are about to start themselves as well. So it's a really interesting year for comic strips and comic books all at the same time. Funnies on Parade, though, is not for sale as the comic book. It was widely produced, but it, it, it was a giveaway related to product. It beat Famous Funnies, but Famous Funnies was the first one that actually had a, a price on it and was sold to the newsstand market. Yeah, Max Gaines is the one that did Famous Funnies. Yeah. Eastern Color Printing was Funnies on Parade, but Max Gaines actually did work for Eastern Color Printing, though. Although he worked for them, it was Famous Funnies that he had more of an active hand in. But it was all from him being a salesperson at Eastern Color Printing and his involvement with that that then did start that modern packaged comic book. The content was just newspaper comic strips. This was before original material, which is, I think, credited more to Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson as far as putting together original material for a comic book. Well, now, how did Dell and Whitman and Western Publishing fit into this? Because I know they were one of the early publishers of comic book material, reprints and new stuff. How did that fall into this? Dell published the first issue of Famous Funnies and then gave up on it. So the other company who was printing it said, well, we'll keep doing it. That's my understanding. So Dell was associated with the very first issue. And Alex, does does that ring a bell with you? George Delacorte's Dell did put together Famous Funnies, but it did work with Eastern Color Printing, who did make the Funnies on Parade. There was a collaboration between those two companies to make Famous Funnies, and Max Gaines had very much to do with the construction of Famous Funnies. So Dell came from the name Delacorte. Yes. I never knew that. So 
yet something else you learn here on the Comic Historian Podcast. Yes, we're not just eye candy, folks. We also know what we're talking about. I'm just kidding. We, we're totally eye candy. So going back to this, Dell became Western, or Western was part of Dell. Did they become Western because there was an Eastern? Dell just became partners with Western. That happened in the later 30s. They were actually two separate entities. Then they split in the early 60s, and Western starts doing the gold key stuff. Dell is doing new Dell comics. So they had a good 25-year run as partners together. They were really successful, mostly known for their Disney stuff, but that's later. You know, I want to point out, we were talking earlier about Kniff and and, uh, Sickles coming in in the uh, early 30s, 32 or so, from Ohio to New York. I just want to point out that there's two, two guys that are still left in Ohio at this time that are starting to work together for the, for the very first time. Sigel and Schuster, uh, at this point, are actually publishing in 1934, they're publishing their science fiction fanzine. And Reign of Superman was 1933. This was the one with the evil Superman. Yeah, he was more like Lex Luthor. He was uh, black and white, and he was bald. Okay, gotcha. This is before they were using names like Jarrell in Federal Men a year before Superman came out. Oh, Jarrell didn't come from the Lowry story? I don't know what you mean. Who wrote the book, The Superman? Wasn't it Lowry, Jim? Uh, I don't know what book you're talking about. Okay, there was a there was a textual book that came out in 1940, I believe. I thought it was by a guy named Lowry. It may not be. But there was a book, and it contained an awful lot of the things that were used in later Superman mythos, just like the Fleischer stuff was the first evidence of him flying rather than just leaping and things of that nature. I think Jarrell would have already been out in the strip by that point. Okay, I don't remember them naming his parents that early, but you could well be right. I'm going to have to go back and look at that. Thank you. I'm almost pretty sure they weren't named in the comic, but they were named in the comic strip that early. Okay, got you. Well, then maybe that material made it to the author of the book, and it hadn't come out in the comic book until it showed up in there, because I know an awful lot of the things that they had in the early mythos was missing from the comic book version until the book came out. Getting back to what we're saying about comic books and comic strips, you would not have comic books if it weren't for comic strips, wouldn't you, Jim? Yeah, they couldn't have existed without comic strips. The content of the first comic books were just newspaper strip reprints, and there were licensing fees like anything else. When a movie studio wants to make a newspaper strip, they got to pay for the license to use it by the people who own the rights to it. And the same thing happened with comic books. To reprint that, they got to pay a licensing fee. And after a while, they started thinking, well, why don't we just make these without having to pay the licensing fee so you have the original material? So it was a a transition from newspaper strips to comic books, in a physical way, where the first comic strip, comic books were just strip reprints. But remember, they were the reprints from the old generation of newspaper strips, like the 1920s stuff. Not really so much the new stuff that we all associate the golden age of strips with, like, like we were talking about, the Flash Gordon and the Jungle Jim and Secret Agent X9. Something I just want to add about Alex Raymond that I know we've talked about him a little bit already. When he was making Flash Gordon, it was in response to Buck Rogers, we know that. But when he was making Jungle Jim, that was in response to Hal Foster's Tarzan. And when he was making Secret Agent X-9, it was in response to Chester Gold's Dick Tracy. So 
as a young upstart who was just getting into the newspaper field, he really just went out guns blazing and just went after everybody. And I really feel that the amount of talent and confidence that it takes to do that and literally just start taking names and take out all the old guys like that, that's just an amazing thing to me. What's your favorite, Alex? I'm curious. Mine is Flash Gordon just because I like sci-fi and I like all that grand cinematic colorful stuff. But I do like the Jungle Jim stuff. I read all his Secret Agent X-9. His Secret Agent X-9, to me, I like Chester Gold's Dick Tracy better. I liked Al Williamson's Secret Agent X-9, Secret Agent Corrigan strip more than Raymond's Secret Agent X-9. But honestly, he was doing that at the same time as the other two for a while. I feel like that's a lot of work out of one person, a lot of talent out of one person. It's hard to keep up the same awesomeness all the time, but he did an amazing job. I liked Rip Kirby probably more than I did any of the other Alex Raymond bits, and that's because that's his post-war work, and I think it's a little heavier in substance and tone than the other, not to take away from Flash Gordon or the other, but the substance, I think, is really there in Kirby versus anything else. I totally believe that Alex Raymond was the Ernest Hemingway of the medium. I believe others were in that mold. I believe Milton Kniff was one of those as well, and not to mention Chester Gould. I think these guys were able to tell a story just as well with both pictures and words as Hemingway was with the pen. I wouldn't put Chester Gould... You know, like, I, I think what he does is good, but I don't think he's in the same category from an art perspective. It's just a different vibe completely to me and a different generation. I think that Kniff and, and, and Raymond and Foster are of one thing, and Sickles, too. But I will say... Chester Gould was much more the epitome of what comic book artists and writers would become because he got transfixed to characters in such a way that Kenneth and Raymond did not. An awful lot of the Batman villainy and the way that they would bring out Batman's obstacles were very similar to uh, the way Chester Gould was handling it in Dick Tracy. And I don't think Batman would have looked the same if there had been no Dick Tracy. What do you think, Alex? There were many inspirations toward Batman or many influences like the Zorro movie and the, even Doc Savage and the Shadow. There are elements of all these things in Batman, but for sure there is definitely an element of Dick Tracy in the Batman strip. There are a lot of villains in the Dick Tracy strip that look just like later Batman villains like Broadway Bates looks just like the Penguin. Actually, there's a whole list. I know that Alvin Schwartz and Bob Kane, I have quotes from both of them saying that they both read Dick Tracy and that they were very influenced by it. So I do know that. But I would say that I do know what Jim is saying from an artistic standpoint. I don't think you can really compare something like Alex Raymond's Flash Gordon or... Hal Foster's Tarzan or Hal Foster's Prince Valiant artistically to Dick Tracy by Chester Gould. I will say, though, that you are correct, Bill, that the characterization of Dick Tracy was a big deal, and that was definitely unique to make a person feel more real and his relationship with Junior and Tess to feel as real as he did, to make them feel like real people. I would say that Harold Gray did the same with Little Orphan Annie and Daddy Warbucks where they felt like people, and that dialogue that they put in there, that you got to know that those characters as if they were real people. And that is something that I didn't get so much out of the Alex Raymond and Hal Foster stuff. So I will say that as far as the art, I agree with Jim that that stuff is kind of blows it away. But I agree with Bill in that the characterization of through Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie was, I think, better 
than the action stuff that uh, Alex Raymond or Hal Foster did. Part of it is the emphasis on daily strip versus Sunday pages. I think there are artists who do one better than the other, and very few that do both equally well. Gould did just as well with color as he did black and white. I I don't think his Sunday... It's not about color, it's about the page. I don't think his Sunday pages are anything compared to what an Alex Raymond page is, but you got to remember Flash Gordon was only a Sunday for a long, long time during uh, during Raymond's tenure there. There wasn't a daily. Well, and Gray and Gould looked much more like the Buck Rogers kind of prototype than he did the more realistic-looking Raymond and Hal Foster. So I totally agree with you guys on this. We do have to say it's a big soup, uh, a big stew that comics are, and they wouldn't have become what they did without both kinds of influences. Totally. I mean, you need the art, you need the characterization to make a good comic book. There's no doubt about it. It's easy to be an art snob because, of course, Alex Raymond, there were very few people, even now, that come close to him. Steve Rude may be an example of people currently. You have quite a few people that tried to uh, elevate the art form. Few people that have even been able to go beyond what Foster and Alex were able to do. I would say that Alex Ross would be able to make a great Sunday. Yes, he sure would. He sure would. And even Mike Alred, but Mike Alred is probably more in the Dick Tracy and Buck Rogers vein. Yeah, totally. Oh, did you guys, that, that DC project that they did like a decade ago, that was fantastic where they actually did funny and sunny papers? Yes, yes. Uh, that actually happened in, um, I believe it was 2009, so it's about eight years. It was phenomenal, and I'm a little surprised it didn't keep going, because comic strips like Nexus have made this transition to a Sunday format. Ryan Sook, Commandy, was fantastic. There were there were about five of them out of the, the that were really understood the format, and All Red was one of them. Well, Garcia uh, Lopez's Metal Man was fantastic. I really enjoyed almost everything in that series. Okay, guys, guess what time it is? It's time for the Weekly Rant. Yes, we're there already, folks. I know time flies when you're having fun, and even when you're not. So this week, I'm going to start with Jim Thompson. Jim, rant away. My rant is going to be about Superman. I read something by somebody that's very passionate about Superman recently, and he was just raving about the character as it should be understood. And I hear people talk about how Superman and Captain America don't really have relevance today. And I, I, I it's a, it's a tired rant, I suppose, but I just want to say just how wrong it is that somebody can step in there, that Mark Wade knows how to write. The first issue of, of the relaunched Captain America came out last week, and it's, it's just right. And that he understands the character, and he understands Superman. And it's a crime that that character is not being represented on any level the way that he's supposed to be. That's it. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because as the 20th century becomes more and more of a distant memory. I mean, we're going to rely on these guys that were around then to, like, hold the torch for another 10, 15 years. But once that generation of writers goes and we got the new kids, 
I have no clue what Superman will look like, because <laughs> I, I feel like Superman is such a symbol of the 20th century that I, I'm just not sure what will happen to Superman in the year 2040, for example. Okay, Alex, it's your turn. What's your rant this week? You know, uh, something that I find really interesting is uh, ancient aliens. You, you guys ever think much about that? Ancient aliens, ancient astronauts? H.P. Lovecraft had his Call of Cthulhu, which was about an ancient alien that came to Earth sleeping under the ocean. There is also Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel and 2001 Space Odyssey with ancient aliens leaving artifacts on the moon. You have the Easter Island Stonemen that Kirby's talked about. You have some books in the 60s, but the most famous one is Chariots of the Gods. You have Tintin, Flight 714 to Sydney, that had to do with alien artifacts found in South American caves. You know, I just find that it's so interesting that as a people, we find ourselves every now and then fascinated with this concept of aliens coming to Earth. Was Thor a real thing? Was it an alien with a lightning stick or what? Uh, what's the what's the deal? The Eternals by Jack Kirby, the space gods are coming. I'm always curious to see how that, I think it's almost become its own sub-genre under sci-fi now. And so anytime there's a comic book about that, I'm always excited to read it because I like to see the new version of an ancient alien story. And that leads me to my rant this week, which is don't forget where your stuff comes from. Yes, TV series that come from comic books and comic strips right now are all the rage. But there are so many people that have no idea that the Flash, this Flash, began in the uh, mid-50s, uh, signaled the beginning of the Silver Age. Nobody even knows what the Silver Age is. Yet, they know almost all the characters in Flash because of the TV series. So, is this stuff going to pay back? Are we going to have things like, well, people that get turned on to comics by Gotham and the X-Men TV series that are coming out now, like Gifted and Legion. The Runaways and Legion. And Legion. Yes, Legion, which Legion is actually probably the best of the lot. And oh, not only far. That, yes, and Legion has also been mentioned in the same breath as Twin Peaks, which is pretty pretty high standards as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm a huge David Lynch fan and filmmaker myself, so... I really have always looked to Lynch for that, but the critics, including Eric Dagens from NPR, have been quick to point out that TV is being completely changed by television shows like Legion that are going in directions that are almost more comic book-like than they are TV-like. So what I'm trying to say is don't forget where the stuff comes from, folks, but enjoy your TV series, and hopefully the TV series will continue to imprint on the comics as well, not to mention the movies, and we are less than two weeks away from what could be the best or the worst of the comic book movies, and that, of course, is Justice League. The best or the worst? Well, yeah, I mean, it, well, I don't think it's going to be the best, but I don't, I'm hoping it's not the worst, and... DC uh, this week also mentioned that they are shutting down the DCEU. Cinematic version of DC is not going to be as all-encompassing as Marvel has been. And I'm not quite sure why that happened. I don't know if you guys have heard the scuttlebutt, but that goes back to my rant. 
and guys, get your act together because people need this kind of imagery, iconry, whatever you want to call it on film, and it all comes from the storytelling medium that started it all, and that's comics. So that's my rant for the week. We have a special, special guest on our next podcast, and we're not even going to tell you who it is. We want you to tune in. I will say he's had over a 40-year career in comics. He's someone that almost all of you, if not all of you, will know his name. And he's had a huge impact on the X-Men. And that's all I'm going to say. And you might be able to figure it out. You might not. But you must stay tuned to two weeks from now when we have our special expert guest here on the Comic Book Historian Podcast. For the rest of the guys, I'll say this. Jim, good night, my friend. Good night. And Alex, (laughs) good night, my friend. Good night, everybody. And I will say it like Getty Lee. Good night. No, I'm just joking. But we will see you in two weeks. And thank you for tuning in as usual. And tell all your friends about us. And give us high ratings and high rankings and criticism and even bad criticism, if that's what you feel about us. We're, you know, we're not beyond that. We'll cry a little bit, but we'll get over it. But we want to thank you all for being loyal listeners to this podcast, and we will see you in 14 days. I'm Bill Field. For my friends Alex and Jim, we're out of here.